You're listening to the Unheld in News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths. Each week, we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media, and we analyze these events. Just as in Jesus' day, Pharisees still walk the earth. Among them today are the celebrity Christians who support wars in the Middle East to protect Israel. In our Pharisee Watch portion of the program, we feature stories about the unchristlike acts of these modern-day Pharisees. Our programs are led by Charles E. Carlson, the founder of We Hold These Truths, and author and editor of the Pharisee Watch, and unheralded news features on our website, whtt.org. Joining Chuck are four other founders of We Hold These Truths. Travis Steele is the owner of Steele Engineering. Mark Horton is the president of Ultra Clean Corporation. Chuck McCollum is the owner of Oakshade Development. And Tom Compton is a retired sales engineer and your announcer. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Ford. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to be talking about the economy and some other interesting items, and we're also going to talk about our last week's Pharisee Watch on Romans 13. We'll be talking about Aristotelian logic, which is something well beyond my capabilities, but our good friend Chuck Carlson is going to be talking about that. Okay, our first item here is from Bloomberg. There's a professor by the name of Rubini, R-O-U-B-I-N-I, says there's a perfect storm that may threaten the global economy. Quote, a perfect storm of physical woe in the U.S., a slowdown in China, European debt restructuring, and stagnation in Japan may converge on the global economy, New York professor Noriel Rubini said. There are already elements of fragility, he said, Everybody's kicking the can down the road of too much public and private debt. The can is becoming heavier and heavier, bigger on debt, and all these problems may soon come to a head by 2013 at the latest. There are already elements of fragility, he says. Everybody is kicking the can down the road of too much public and private debt. The can is becoming heavier and heavier and bigger on debt, and all these problems may come to a head by 2013 at the latest, unquote. That's a good analogy of the can getting heavier and heavier here. Yes, and this Rabini, he's kind of made himself famous because back in 2006, he predicted the collapse of the real estate market and the catastrophe that would take place then in pretty much the same kind of language. So that's why he got this press from Bloomberg News, even though, there's a huge effort right now to keep the economy rolling and to uh, and to hide from any news of any kind that's uh, negative. And you see this tainting of the news constantly going on where they dress up the most unhappy news to make it to put it in a, in a in a clean skirt and run it past you uh and uh, make you think that it's all roses. And there've been several examples of this, but one example of this is a recent announcement that consumer spending is up. But what made consumer spending up is the price of gasoline went up. And since they don't adjust things people buy for inflation when they talk about increased spending, they call this a very really cheery and optimistic sign of enthusiasm on the part of consumers. In fact, it was desperation. Consumers are having to pay almost $4 a gallon for their gas in May. So 
this is an example of dressing up the news. Rabini, of course, is saying that trouble is imminent, and we would tend to agree based upon our evaluation of the news. Okay. Our next item. Senate rejects bill to kill ethanol tax break. Bloomberg News. The 40 to 59 tally left opponents of federal support for ethanol, 20 votes short of the 60 votes needed to advance the measure. The amendment attached to an economic development bill wasn't likely to become law. Advocates on both sides of the vote viewed it as a test that would shape the ethanol industry's future. Farm state senators opposed the repeal effort and said they would support gradual changes. For every gallon of ethanol we use, that's one less gallon of oil from the Middle East, said Senator John Hoven, a North Dakota Republican. I'll put my two cents in on there. I don't think that's true. But uh, anyway, the ethanol vote highlighted a schism within the Republican Party between Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma and tax cut advocates such as Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform, a Washington group that has persuaded 40 of 47 Republican senators to sign its no tax increase pledge. Coburn painted the ethanol vote as a test of the agreement, which opposes the elimination of a tax break as a tax increase. Coburn faced objections from Norquest supporters as well as from Democratic leaders who were irritated at the parliamentary maneuver Coburn used to force a vote. The Obama administration opposes repealing the tax credit, White House spokesman Jay Carney said today. Ethanol opponents formed a broad coalition, including the animal agriculture industry that relies on corn for food, environmentalists who question the benefits of corn-based ethanol, and anti-spending advocates who see the program as wasteful. No other product I know of has the triple crown of government support than corn ethanol has in this country, said Senator Dianne Feinstein, a California Democrat, referring to the tax credit, the tariff, and the mandate on ethanol use. The defeat of Coburn's amendment doesn't necessarily mean that the $0.45-cent-a-gallon ethanol tax credit will be extended beyond its scheduled expiration. But it's going to go down dying pretty hard, though, with opposition. But it is interesting that they've got an interesting coalition of lefties and righties and the whole whole nine yards. That's our atmosphere today, isn't it? It really. What's really missing from this is a good cross-section of just ordinary grassroots Americans. And it's being kind of treated like it's an issue that affects groups when, in fact, absolutely everybody is affected by this. And we would say that this has a very good chance of being voted down if just enough people realize it so that they put pressure on these congressmen who tell lies like this guy from North Dakota did. There isn't much corn raised in North Dakota, but there are enough farmers around there that, that he has to toe the line, and he would have to, of course, support the bill. And so he makes this outrageous statement that it saves fossil fuels. Actually, it takes more fossil fuels to produce this stuff than you save. So it, there's actually an increase in consumption and and the price of fossil fuels as a result of ethanol. And if you do hear this podcast, somebody passes this on to you, be sure to look at our Podbean site, whtt.podbean.com, and there are some very interesting programs on ethanol, 
and including uh, with a chemical engineer, Russell Walker. So there's some good resources that has been published by We Hold These Truths. I have one last item here, and that is Citibank. The United States government has asked Citibank to explain how they could be hacked. And Citibank, of course, has plenty of money to hire computer technicians. And they have been hacked into, and somebody's walked off with a whole bunch of credit card numbers. Whether or not they actually can use the credit cards is, is sort of a moot point. The question is that the security of this big bank has been violated, and so somehow this is aroused to Congress. We'd like to bring this up because our site has been hacked as well. We're in the process of rebuilding it, and we probably are have been hacked for kind of the same reason they have. We used the designers of our own to design our site, and we found out that the best sites are designed by large groups of uh, public interest people that actually get together and, and uh, work on these things in unity and have done, ama- done amazing things re- producing really excellent computer products. So, Now let's move into our discussion on Romans 13. Chuck, there's a passage from Matthew that you want to talk about. Uh, yes. One, one of the things that we've been asked about, we've been asked several things, uh, some of them not very complimentary. People think that we are changing God's words, so we've been told that. People think we're not qualified because we haven't been to seminary, and so we shouldn't ever be able to interpret anything for ourselves. In fact, we think that everybody should interpret the Bible for themselves, and that that is exactly what was intended, that our common sense guide us in reading it. One of the statements that, uh, of course, precipitates all this, we evaluated in our paper called Romans 13, The Neo-Christian Sorry Excuse for War. This passage, written by the Apostle Paul, we think, at some time in the book of Romans, where he, in effect, made statements that sound like he believes that God gives special treatment to politicians. And he referred them to them as magistrates, and that was translated into rulers. And so, in effect, the simplified reading of this text would give one the opinion that Paul believed that rulers were appointed to rule by God. This, of course, would was something that we know in our college educations and high school educations as the divine rights of kings. Kings back in the days of the Tudor kings believed that they were appointed by God and said so. And they expected everyone to treat them like they were appointed by God. And Henry VIII, of course, believed that God appointed him mm-hmm. uh, as he beheaded his how many wives? Eight. Yeah. Uh, several, several, not all of them were beheaded. King James, who actually commissioned the King James Bible, believed that he was divinely appointed by God. And that has probably some reason why these translations seem to be kind of favorable toward rulers. But we went so far as to say that this could not be a, a real legitimate and intended statement of Paul because we believe Paul himself was divinely chosen by God, by Jesus, Paul contended that he was visited by Jesus himself and appointed. And Paul, of course, was beheaded by the rulers in the end. And so we think that he was spoofing, that he was using a device, a teaching device, when he uh, when he did this. At least this author thinks that. Not everybody that is here at our table might agree. And in the course of this, the issue of Aristotelian, Aristotelian logic. Is that pronounced? Is that the way? Aristotelian logic. Well, it's from Aristotle. 
So supposedly uh, from Aristotle. Now I am not a student of Aristotle myself, but as Aristotelian logic is described to me, it is the idea that if you assume that the Bible is God's word, and then you go on to assume that every word of the Bible is God's word, then you have to assume that any part of it can stand alone without any context at all, and that it then can be read so that you could pick a verse right out of the Bible and read it, and that is the true. That is true without regard to what the context of the, of the statement was. George Barna has written an excellent book about this uh, in a book in which this is uh, discussed at some length uh, called Pagan Christianity, and we don't recommend books very often, but he explained this to me, and I thought it was helpful to me to, to read it. He gave the example of the uh, guy sitting in his hotel room in agony and contemplating suicide and decides to read the Bible, opens the passage and finds immediately a passage uh, when he puts his finger down about Judas. And it said, so Judas went out and killed himself. Now, he then opened the, he didn't understand the meaning of this, uh, and it bothered him somewhat, so he flipped to another page and at random picked another verse out. And, uh, and it was Jesus speaking this time, and he was speaking to his apostles, and he said, therefore go forth into the world and do likewise. Now the conclusion Barna drew would was that the two phrases might be absolutely true in the context that they were intended, but when you took them out and patched them together and used them together and then assumed both were true, you ended up with a very unhappy result for the sad drunk in his hotel room with his Gideon Bible. Not at all the purpose of the Gideons when they came along and placed that book in the hotel room that this poor fellow would end up having, that he take his own life. Justification for killing himself. So this is Aristotelian logic, apparently, according to George Barna, and whatever you call it, it is farcical, and it is the way that uh, most of our evangelical dispensational leaders have come to interpret the Bible, because they're trying to arrive at a point, uh, go forth and do likewise, uh, whatever their point is, and so they select passages that make that point, they patch them together, and they sell it as being the truth. And, in fact, if you take a sermon delivered along these lines, such as John Hagee gives every Sunday, where he proves absolutely that the state of Israel is our Savior and that uh, we have to honor it above all, that it is uh, divinely appointed by God itself, he does that using Aristotelian logic. Aristotelian logic. Aristotelian logic, I think it is. I'm getting better at that. So this is the application of it that we see every day and it is the way that you can get anything you want out of the Bible. And in plain, simple facts, people like John Hagee connive to get what they want out of the Bible. And they sell it then as God's divine inspired words. We think that Paul does not practice that. We think that every, when he spoke, he spoke always in perfect context. The context of his life, the context of his writings, the context of the chapter, the context of the verse. Everything that he wrote had a way of coming down to making sense. And uh, so we wonder why these six verses are completely diametrically opposed to his entire life. Uh, a man who was persecuted for his faith, uh, a man who uh, he, he gave us these examples of how many times he'd been whipped, how many times he'd been stoned, how many times he'd been threatened, how many times he'd been run out of town, how many times he'd been thrown in jail. And it's all somewhere in the available I don't remember exactly where he where he uh, made that statement, but it's an impressive number. 
So why would Paul say that the rulers were divinely, that they had divine right of kings, in effect, according to King James? We think that he said it as a spoof and that he didn't mean it at all. Whether he was joking, spoofing, or not, uh, whether he just had a bad day, or whatever it is, it's not repeated anyplace else in his work, nor is it repeated or supported in anything Jesus said. So our paper actually suggests that uh, this is a one of the cases of the Bible where you should probably uh, use your own good judgment and say, whatever the reason, this Paul did not mean this. If he did mean it, he would have repeated it somewhere else and emphasized it and told us that he really did mean it. Well, it seems to me that there would be the issue of predestination. I don't know if we want to get that's a, a scope there. Because God knows, if God is infinite and knows everything, then he would know what was going to happen. So in essence, he's allowed these people to come to power, say a Hitler or what have you. But that still doesn't give us the right to say that we have to follow the leader when it violates God's other commandments, thou shalt not kill, love thy neighbor as thyself, blessed are the peacekeepers, and things like that. So there's the higher law that God has given us where we have to use some common sense, I think. Yes. Well, there's a place where Jesus treated the same topic. This is the case where someone was taunting him, one of the Pharisees was taunting him. They wanted to get him in trouble, and they were trying to get him to say he didn't believe in paying taxes to, to Caesar. Jesus obviously didn't think Caesar was divinely appointed, or he would have said so. But, Leslie, would you care to read that passage where Jesus was asked about paying taxes? Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So now, Jesus has used a really uh, device here. By limiting, he's absolutely limited what Caesar is entitled to. And in his statement, he has essentially said, Caesar gets nothing but that which has his name on it, and God gets everything else. So this statement is interesting, and, of course, interestingly enough, uh, in Paul's account, where he has made these statements about the rulers being... Well, can you read Paul's little statement, verses 1 through 6? Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is 
a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Well, now, thank you, Leslie. Now, that doesn't sound too much like that, what Jesus said. However, if Paul was going to summarize those six verses in the seventh verse, here is how I would say he would probably have summarized them. Therefore, give honor to public officials, and you will have no reason to fear them. Does that seem fair? That, uh, is that how you would, uh, if you were summarizing this for Paul, was that a fair summarization? All right. Instead, he gives us a riddle in verse 7. So let's now read verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay, this is the first time honor has been mentioned. And what he's saying here is a little riddle. He's saying, now you have to decide who deserves fear, who deserves honor, who deserves bribes, and uh, which is what taxes were. And the tribute is the word that they use, which is a sort of a way of saying a bounty or a, a bribe. Instead of saying what the logical way of summarizing this is, Paul leaves the listener with this riddle that says, now it's up to you to decide who deserves what. And honor to whom honor is due. So it seems to me that he sort of unraveled his first six verses in the seventh verse. And with that, we will leave this review of Romans 13. Ephesians 6.12, to me, contradicts Romans 13. And it was also written by the Apostle Paul, right? Exactly, okay. yes. And was it written before or after? I'm not sure I know. Uh, Probably before. We said it was like 60 A.D. I think it was after, because this was like 57 or something. Uh, what appears to me to be a contradiction of Romans 13 is Ephesians 6:12 in the NIV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It does put it on a different light. Any other comments? So you feel that Ephesians is saying that the battle is with earthly powers? Well, you know, the, the rulers and the authorities mm -hmm. are separated in, the, in that verse from the powers of the dark world. Well, wouldn't those those principalities be of the spiritual world? Can you say, whereas Romans 13 is talking about the physical world, and this is referring to the spiritual war, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But, but that's after he says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world. He, he separates the three things the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of the dark world. And we know that uh, there are rulers that are inhabited by dark powers. For example, Hitler and Stalin, Mao yeah. Zedong, would be yeah. 
And that's why we couldn't understand the support of America's George Bush's war against Iraq, and they wouldn't recognize the power of Hitler and Stalin. Yes. You know. Well, certainly it does not support the statement that our leaders are appointed by God to do good for us. And I think you can comb the Ephesians from beginning to end, and you won't find Paul saying that anywhere in Ephesians. And my suggestion when I was asked this in a recent radio interview is start out by reading Paul's first books before you read anything else. The first book was that he wrote was Thessalonians, six chapters long. Read the whole thing and see if you can find anything in it that ever says that Paul believes any leader or any person of any kind is given any preference over any other by God. And in that book, Paul makes this very, very clear statement. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither man nor woman. There's neither free nor slave. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That seems to fly in the face of all except, he didn't say all except the rulers, who, uh, of course, have a special blessing from God and are appointed by God and therefore don't fit into this pattern at all. Mm -hmm. Nowhere does Paul say that anywhere in any of his, his writings. Okay, thank you. That was a good discussion. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.